Hi, dear. It's good to be with you. What do you have to drink? We have a lot of chocolate chip cookies, so I would like a tall glass of milk. We, we can do that. This is Where is the Love? I am Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And uh, Melissa, I think we have something of a metaphor for for marriage here. Yeah. And you know I'm very happily married to you. But okay. uh, the original conceit when I came up with the what are you drinking opening to oh, the podcast yeah? was like, we're going to be drinking like some really like cocktails and like, you know, we're going to show... Uh, you know, we're really living it up. And I think like five out of the seven episodes, it's been like, you know, like chamomile tea, <laughs> milk, but, I mean, water with juice. So we had cookies and so I wanted milk. That's the whole story. I mean, you're, I do ask you what you want. Yeah, you ask no me what conditions. I want. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, no, no. And the, I mean... Like marriage, it, it it has evolved to something beautiful in its own right, even if it isn't exactly what we thought it would be getting in. We're growing together. It's beautiful. Yeah, what you said. <laughs> uh, well, hey, we're recording uh, this on a Tuesday because mm-hmm. we have some travel coming up, and so we don't have uh, the top five yet. Because no. we, we, we take the top five from that week's content, and we're still at the very early part of, of this week. And so what we thought we'd do is just cover some interesting political stories that have stuck out. I may write on these at some point, so this may, might end up being a preview of, of uh, some of the writing that you'll see on the Substack, um, or we may just say uh, we cover it in the podcast and... Uh, and, and that's that. Um, I guess before we jump in, I usually save this for the end, but this is a great episode to remind folks um, that this podcast is a uh, sort of a sidecar uh, to sort of the, the Robin to the Batman of our newsletter. And so uh, it's a newsletter we've been doing for years and years um, would love for you to join the community, philanthropists, uh, uh, civic leaders, religious leaders, uh, receive uh, a few times a week uh, uh, a curated news analysis uh, uh, from uh, Melissa and I. Uh, and so you can sign up at reclaiminghope.substack.com for that. And uh, uh, typically this podcast is directly tied to the top five that we send out uh, typically on Sundays. And so we'd love for you to sign up for the newsletter. would also encourage you all. Uh, it's been so great uh, hearing the reaction from those of you. It's been a good indication that we should keep doing this podcast. Um, uh, another great indication that we should keep doing the podcast is if you'll leave a review uh, uh, yes. on iTunes um, or, or I don't, spot, uh, does Spotify have reviews? You, yeah, you can... Click the little star thingies and oh, give us cool. five stars. 
Yeah, I mean, your choice, but uh, but Melissa's being prescriptive here. Five stars, uh, and uh, I, mean, I won't. I won't. I shoot I, for the stars, Michael. I won't rebut that. Um, and so, uh, and so, uh, uh, yeah, that would just be a great encouragement to us and algorithms, whatever. Um, let's let's dive in. Let's do it. And I think we'll start on. Kind of your side of the Atlantic. I mean, you're on this side of the Atlantic, but you've worked for the Brits. Yes, and, many, uh, many years. And you know the Brits well. Yes. And the Brits are uh, wound up in a tizzy. Is that sufficiently British? Is that kind of British? Yeah, they are not feeling chuffed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa. Uh, All of my British friends right now are like rolling their eyes. They're like, oh, come on, Melissa. Melissa, tell the people the basics of... Uh, what's what's happening in British politics right now? So the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is in a bit of a scandal right now. Uh, it, he has been for the last several weeks um, with a few different things going on, but the, the key one right now is that um, it was found out that in December of 2020, um, Downing Street, where you know the Prime Minister lives and runs the country out of, um, held Christmas parties. Think of it. December 2020, what was going on? We were in the height of COVID, um, and the UK was in a lockdown. And so meeting with more than a couple of people was actually illegal at the time. And yet they found that 24 people had attended um, this one party. Um, There's pictures of it. Um, And so uh, rightfully so, many members in parliament, um, citizens across the country are very upset over this. Um, You know, how could the prime minister go against his own rules, his own policies, do something that's actually illegal, um, even to the point where the Tories, the Tories, the Conservative Party, that's that's the Prime Minister's party, have turned on him. Um, they've produced a report called the Gray Report, which looked into these parties, you know, to actually do a fact-finding mission to determine that they did, in fact, happen. Um, and Theresa May, who is a Tory, and the former Prime Minister before Boris Johnson, she recently... Um, uh, she delivered some frosty remarks, very concise, but frosty remarks at a prime minister question, um, PMQs, um, session, which PMQs are very special, unique British, um, uh, political event that happens every Wednesday afternoon. Um, it's in the constitutional convention for the UK where the prime minister goes to the house of commons and has to answer the questions of Um, his fellow MPs. So it's a really unique democratic process where citizens can watch it live on on a couple of BBC channels that's been broadcasted, I think, since the early 90s. I think it was 1990 it first started uh, being broadcast. But also, um, citizens' MPs, um, they get to ask questions. Um, And so it's just a really interesting process, um, especially if you uh, haven't heard of them. But Theresa May, we really want to play a clip of some of the things that she said. Yeah, and so, so just, I mean, just again, and Melissa, that was that was uh, a really good overview. It is like stunning to think about. Uh, like it's a big event in American politics when the president of the United States takes questions from members of Congress, for instance. Yeah. Like a lot of planning goes into it, a lot of negotiation. I remember. Uh, uh, in the first um, 
couple of years of the Obama administration. It was a big deal when Barack Obama went to the Republican caucus conference to answer questions about, I believe it was about uh, health reform at the time. And uh, like, it's, it's just, it's a unique occasion here. In the UK, every week, it's just, it's just kind of, I would call it a spectacle, but it's, it's too normal in the UK to be a spect uh, spectacle. And then the other thing that's interesting here, right, is like, Theresa May was prime minister, mm -hmm. uh, but it's, it's quite common. David Cameron, or um, uh, uh, Gordon Brown yeah. went back uh, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to serve. It's actually yep. not uncommon for prime ministers when they, uh, when, they, when they leave that office to return to be an MP serving their, their, their local constituency. constituency. Yeah. Um, and so you have this environment where uh, Theresa May, former prime minister of the same party, uh, uh, is in a position to really deliver what we might look back on as a critical blow. And we're going to play you this, and then I have a just a comment about how this reflects, or how this, um, I think, speaks to the political moment that we're in in the states that folks should be attentive to. But here's here's the audio from from uh, this this pretty incredible exchange. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The COVID regulations impose significant restrictions on the freedoms of members of the public. They had a right to expect their Prime Minister to have read the rules, to understand the meaning of the rules, and indeed those around them to have done around him to have done so too and to set an example in following those rules. What the Gray Report does show is that Number 10 Downing Street was not observing the regulations they had imposed on members of the public. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules, or didn't understand what they meant, and others around him, or they didn't think the rules applied to Number 10. Which was it? It's a very important question. I want to hear the answer even if other people don't. Prime Minister. Uh, no, Mr Speaker, that is not what the uh, Grey Report says. I suggest that she waits to see uh, the conclusion of the inquiry. So, I mean, pretty stunning. I mean, one side note to point out is that uh, my favorite role in British government is the sassy parliamentarian. I just think that's that's a really that's his official title. Yeah, yeah, sassy. Never yeah. official title. He's never not allowed to be sassy. <laughs> um, uh, that's very true. Uh, we we allow no religious tests for office in America, but uh, in the UK test. they allow a, a sass test. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, but right, stunning. And there was a level of drama and really accountability in that moment that only happens, like, it's very hard mm -hmm. to construct that. I mean, I think of presidential debates mm -hmm. as the only yeah. time where leaders are exposed to that level. I, I mean, especially executive leaders in Congress, obviously, there's... Um, a little more back and forth, but so so that's uh, 
it, it, it was stunning. I will say, Melissa, when this first bubbled up, I thought, oh, this is like a flash in the pan. Uh-huh. Like, it's important to understand Boris Johnson is not Donald Trump. There were some, like, facile sort of comparisons early on uh, between them. Boris is like a, um, a, a prime minister. Johnson is someone who has uh, a history in government. And yeah, he served a as foreign secretary. He's a tried and true politician. Yeah. Um, but one thing they do share, um, and I have a friend who uh, actually said, uh, a friend in, the, in UK politics who says they think uh, a comparison between Boris and Joe Biden is actually more yeah. uh, more appropriate. I can but see it. but one thing one thing Prime Minister Johnson uh, has in his political history is like a long string of controversies, saying yeah. doing things that mm-hmm. other that, that that political opponents and uncouth. sort of yeah just seem uncouth, unprofessional, yeah. um, and he sort of weathered all of it. I mean mm-hmm. his. His election uh, is is kind of reminiscent of George W. Bush's in the sense that you had a like uh, educated elite who thought, oh, like this this man isn't serious. People mm-hmm. will never like like the people will never elect him. And it turns out like a big swath of the British uh, pu- public thought, oh, or the, uh, the UK public thought, like this is exactly yeah. who we want. Be serious enough for us. Um, and so, you know, tra- traditionally in politics, and then again, especially with, with someone with the track record of, of Prime Minister Johnson, uh, a little uh, a scandal over hosting holiday parties, something so sort of process-oriented, sort of, um, you know, social... Um, that's a flash in a pan. Like the opposition party takes some hits, but like you, you, it's not even weathering the storm. You typically wouldn't expect something like this to have much of an impact. I mean, I get that we're going to talk about why it's different from this, but like in some ways it reminds me of like when there are controversies over like the price of the muffins that were uh-huh. the, uh, at uh, during the Obama administration, there was a controversy because there was some kind of government function where they ended up buying expensive muffins, and and it was you know a misuse of taxpayer dollar money, which is you know a, a fine thing to criticize, but no one's getting you know no one's resigning over it. But as I talk to my friends in the UK, um, like this is the most in danger. Boris Johnson has been like ever like like there are Tories who who think he may he may have to resign over yeah. this. That's a long wind up to my point that I think an important lesson to learn from this and and that I'm learning from this and that that has hit home for me um, is that. When political controversies touch on COVID, have anything to do with COVID, the sacrifices people have made uh, over this time, the political costs to pay will defy what typically would have been conventional wisdom, what typically would have been like, oh, this is like a 24-hour news story. And that's because COVID, 
unlike so many other things in politics, has actually uh, palpably, tangibly reached into the lives of uh, virtually the entire electorate in the UK and here. And so there's a salience to COVID that there just isn't when other political controversies related to issues, related to constituencies, related to um, even you know uh, government corruption, like the government just feels so distant from some people and, and people assume it's corrupt anyways and that kind of thing. But COVID stuff, uh, things, uh, controversies related to COVID, I think um, it's an important lesson heading into the midterms. It'll be interesting to see if there are analogs to this as we head into the midterms of politicians not uh, somehow betraying the public trust or uh, dishonoring the sacrifices that other Americans have made, um, especially as it relates to government regulations. And so I'm just like putting the flag out there. This is a new political moment um, and political strategists on both sides ought to be really primed to be, uh, you know, sensitive to uh, COVID has changed what's a weatherable controversy, I think. And it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Um, it will be interesting to watch if he does ultimately weather the storm because Boris Johnson is I mean, for all of the, for all the, how people talk about how he blunders all the time. It's and a how heck of a politician. He is a very, very intelligent politician. And so it, I would not be surprised if he weathered this, but also would not be surprised if his party um, asks him to resign and then they have to do a leadership election until they get to the next general election. Um, yeah, time will tell. So uh, one of the other, what is something else that we want to discuss? Oh, we, we wanted to discuss um, Governor Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland. Yes. And something he recently, I, I don't know if you call it an announcement. Or yeah, so, I mean, he was asked, so, right, there's a lot of Republicans are expected to do well in the midterms. Uh, there's a open Senate seat or, or, or you know, um, a Maryland Senate election. Uh, and... Larry Hogan is by far the most popular Republican in Maryland politics. Um, some suggestions Michael Steele is looking at the race, but Michael Steele, I mean, he has the MSNBC gig, but he hasn't been in Maryland politics as, yeah. as an elected official in a while. So, but, so Larry Hogan, if he got in the race, he, he'd be a threat to, um, through, to, to any Democrat. Um, uh, and so he was asked, uh, on one of the one of the shows, if he would run for Senate, and he said, uh, "I've been clear on this from day one. I have no interest in running for the Senate." But then he uh, he did suggest that he was considering a run for president in 2024. Uh, so I, I think the conventional wisdom on this, I tend to think, is is most likely right. And the conventional wisdom is a uh, a political party that nominated Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 uh, is not likely to nominate someone who, A, is, uh, who is, uh, 
who has some clear differences that he's that he's open about with Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He's a pro-choice yeah. uh, governor of a blue state. Yeah. He works with Democrats, yeah. uh, or at least has a at least sort of presents a sort of um, bipartisan above the fray kind of thing. And I think a lot of people look and say, like, is is bipartisan above the fray? Come work together. Uh, sort of co- congenial businessman uh, is that really what Republicans are mm-hmm. are looking for, um, uh, or or are they looking a just for Donald Trump to run again, or b for someone who's willing to uh, be a sort of um, um, a, a a base red red meat sort of culture warrior. Um, uh, uh, and Larry Hogan isn't isn't that? Um, I, I have some thoughts, but what 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 do you, what do you think about Larry Hogan running in twenty twenty four? And um, do, do you think there is a, a lane for him? And and sort of how, how what did you think when you heard that he's sort of uh, floating a potential candidacy out there? I, so I really like. I really like Hogan. Um, he's now our governor. We live in Maryland now. I really like him. I mean, yeah, I'm a Democrat, but and yes, I absolutely disagree with him on several issues. But I like that he's not a culture warrior. Now, is there a lane for a Republican candidate that's not a culture warrior? I my instincts tell me no. Even though I wish there was a lane, I wish that for all the people who and we know a lot of people who wish there there was a lane that we could open something up for him to actually get in. But I mean, really the thing that I was thinking the most that when he, when I saw this news was what is the timing here? Why is he saying this now? And I wanted to ask you that question. What do you think? Um, so I think, uh, I mean, it's kind of a truism that th- there are very few downsides to at least putting your name out there. Mm-hmm. At the very least you get, interviews uh fun, uh donors are more interested in talking to you you can throw your weight around in the republican party a bit more it gets you invites across the country yeah um i also think hogan is um concerned well and the other thing sort of on the practical you know uh he will be leaving office soon and so yeah, of course. so it's one way to stay politically relevant yeah. even if he doesn't think that he'll run um I also think he's genuinely concerned about the future of the Republican Party. So I do believe that too. It's a it's yeah. a way to sort of stir like up him. debate, right? Yeah. Um, here here's though. Um, I I know like when you're, especially after um, you know four years of Donald Trump being in office. Uh, you just kind of think, you know, th- this is who the Republican Party is. This is now Trump's party. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and, you know, there there's some strong evidence uh, to suggest that. You see a sort of like uh, um, there are very few elected Republicans that are willing to consistently sort of distance themselves from Trump, criticize him 
We did see a, a, another round of Republican criticism of Trump after uh, he suggested that he'd pardon uh, people who were involved in January 6th. We saw Lindsey Graham sort of, uh, you know, decide that he was going to critique Trump again. But 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 I get I get those who say, like, look at the evidence. They 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 lined up behind him in 2016 with very few exceptions. They supported him throughout his presidency. Only a handful voted uh, to um, uh, uh, around uh, January 6th to hold him accountable. Uh, there, Mitt Romney, you know, voted for impeachment. But where, like, I like, I get, I get all those arguments. I also just want to remind people, um, it. There is an entire party apparatus of the Democratic Party that seems intent on making, uh, on that believes that its pathway to mitigating its midterm losses and uh, its its pathway to um, uh, to sort of uh, um, keeping as much of the public with them as they can uh, is to run against Trump and to. Uh, frankly, pretend like Trump is still in elected office. The amount of ads that we're going to see in the 2022 midterms about Trump, if it's anything like what we saw McAuliffe try to do, and by the way, he failed to do, but McAuliffe couldn't stop talking about Trump. And so I just want to, you know, like, yes, there's good evidence that, uh, like, there, there, there is a, a rational sort of argument to say the Republican Party is, is, Trump is too strong of an influence. Like, I, I get that. I just want to urge a bit of caution that we don't get completely um, snowballed into thinking like there is no there's no hope for an alternative Republican Party. The history of presidential politics and of party politics uh, in modern times is actually of pretty significant backlashes to previous party nominees. I mean, in the same way that uh, uh, Mitt Romney was the Republican Party's nominee in 2012, uh, followed by Donald Trump. Went from uh, Mitt Romney, who wouldn't, uh, who, who doesn't cuss, um, who was a very clean, polite, sort of congenial, uh, 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 moderate governor from Massachusetts to Donald Trump, like, that's a huge change. We went from, you know, just remember 12 years ago, the Republican Party was led by, uh, or I guess now it's 13, 14, was led by George W. Bush, who was supporting the DREAM Act. And just, you know, by the force of Donald Trump, the party, um, well, that, I, obviously this is a more complicated story, but just talking about sort of the party leaders, you went from George W. Bush, who supported something like the DREAM Act, supported comprehensive immigration reform, to eight years later, the party being represented at the presidential level, the leader of the party, uh, the, the person that was nominated as someone who was very uh, against comprehensive immigration reform, had a very different posture towards immigrants, for instance. Um, I guess my point is, Melissa, uh, Leaders can change things still. Uh, and uh, we're going to see a, quite a bit of change in our politics over the next six months, uh, uh, over the midterms. And I just wouldn't 
Um, I wouldn't count out Larry Hogan, maybe too outside, but I, I wouldn't count out the Republican Party looking quite different in 2024. It's, it's at least its nominee looking quite different than it did in 2020 and 2016. I'll just give you one hypothetical, right? So you, you, you think there is no way that the Republican Party will nominate someone who's even squishy on abortion. Well, first of all, they nominated Donald Trump, who uh, ended up sort of like uh, ended up appointing Supreme Court justices who will see how pro-life they are. Uh, 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 but so I think that suggests something. Uh, uh, a party that uh, did entertain Rudy Giuliani at uh, at points as uh, as a potential. Uh, sort of leader, Rudy Giuliani was pro-choice. Condoleezza Rice was pro-choice. So, uh, so there's precedent. There's precedent there for the Republican Party nominating folks who and and sort of lifting up folks for leadership who aren't the most staunch pro-lifers. But imagine Republican Party post Dobbs, where uh, if Dobbs undermines significantly undermines Roe, if it if it turns the abortion issue to the states, you'll see within six to nine months, the Republican Republican controlled states that don't already have laws on the books to significant to ban or significantly uh, uh, limit abortion. You'll see other Republican states move. Uh, we could we could see Republicans make the judgment that actually the best hoped for from their perspective, like state of law around abortion, they it's possible, just possible, that they will have achieved it uh, within the next 12 months. You, you wonder if, if at that point, a Mitch Daniels asked, so Mitch Daniels was a former uh, governor of Indiana. He was uh, going to run for president uh, and he floated out there that he would run uh, by offering a truce on social issues. When he tried to do it, it fell flat. You wonder, in a party that really doesn't want to fight on LGBT issues anymore, uh, uh, a party, they're willing to say no to stuff, but they really, they're, they're willing to say no to the Equality Act, but they really don't want to do any, anything, um, they, they, they've made their peace with Obergefell in terms of Republican members of Congress and that kind of thing, mostly. Um, and then if abortion laws in as favorable a state as basically m most Republicans could imagine it being, you wonder if there's room for a Republican nominee who says, look, we've achieved the Republican Party. I may not agree with it, but the, Repu the Republican Party has achieved so much of what it wants to achieve I, I think it's time to turn to America, Americans' pocketbooks, to the well-being of American families, to, you know, a strong military, you know, other Republican lines of inquiry and saying, you know, on social issues, on, on abortion, for instance, uh, my job will be to keep the federal government out of any major further activity there. You, you wonder if that's viable. Um, yeah, I could imagine a a a a, a uh, set of circumstances in which Larry Hogan, who has business credentials, uh, 
uh, who, remember, Republicans will have been out of power for four years. Maybe they want someone who, like Democrats did in 2020, someone who maybe doesn't fulfill every wish list of advocacy groups, but they feel could beat a Democrat in 2024. So that's all. That's all I'm. That's all I'm saying. Uh, hopefully, I I know that was a. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you. Uh, I I think the main point I I, I <laughs> the main point I want you to take out of all of that is whether it's Larry Hogan or someone else. Don't count out the fact that the Republican primary electorate is not as dogmatic and ideologically committed as uh, as the loudest voices on Twitter or as uh, even like the grassroots organizer folks, like Republican primary has a lot of folks who are going to be compelled by leadership styles and by uh, all kinds of dynamics that actually means that you could see a significant swing in sort of the, the policy priorities or even the persona of the person they nominate. And it's something it's something to, to keep an eye on. Well, I guess all that I have to say, Michael, to that is... I mean, way back in like 2017, you were saying to me, you were saying to others that you felt like the next president after that current uh, term of Donald Trump, you felt like the next president would most likely not be in everybody's living rooms every single night and would be on the minds of people constantly. And now we literally have that presidency. So from your lips to God's ears, I <laughs> know the Republican Party nominates. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so right. It's um, yeah. 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 No, I, I, I absolutely uh be, be, believe that um our, we have a reactive politics we sure do uh for for uh good and for ill we have a reactive politics which means that there's a i mean there's a certain kind of predictability to that but it also means that it's not um it's not reliably static uh and so so that's Larry. That's Larry Hogan. Interested uh, to hear from our uh, our audience. Would you be excited about the Larry Hogan presidency? Um, uh, uh, and I think there are several ways to ask that, right? I mean, I think I'd be excited about Larry Hogan presidency if it meant that we didn't have Don Donald Trump back in office. Um, I know many Democrats who privately would say the same thing, of course, but also. And I think one of the reasons why you're going to see so many attacks on Larry Hogan, just like you saw attacks on, frankly, like, well, this is to go down a whole other rabbit hole that you and I have talked about. <laughs> okay. But like, yeah. let me just give you the scoop. The, <laughs> the, actually, let me let me just, the, this is, I mean, this is just from you to me. We're going in. My former colleagues in the Obama White House did not go after Marco Rubio because he's like uniquely a danger, uh, like uniquely awful. Da -na -na. No, they like they went after him because Marco Rubio was a rising star who they looked at, who I looked at. When I was on the 2012 campaign, I thought if Romney had picked Rubio in 2012 as his VP, that gave Romney the best shot to win. I was very grateful uh, from a political perspective. The fact that I was working on the opposing campaign that Romney picked Ryan, uh, I think that potentially cost him the presidency. Um, uh, they went after Rubio because he was a threat. You're going to see 
a lot of Democrats go after Larry Hogan. Yeah. Not because he's as bad as Trump or what or whatever, but because they know if somehow he got the nomination, he'd be a real threat. Yeah. <laughs> he'd be a real he'd be a real threat. Yeah. And so I would urge you again on so many of these questions. Think about the motives of the people who are communicating. Uh, take what's true of what they say, but also understand that political communicators are, are thinking several moves down the chessboard and, and aren't just giving you sort of like the straight facts on, you know, leaders of the of the opposition party. So, um, cool. Uh, I I think I think we should land. I think we should land the plane. We were going to talk voting rights, but I think. I think this is a. Uh, I'm hoping to write on voting rights um, in in the next several days. If I don't get to write about it, maybe we'll discuss it next week. On the next one, yes. But um, but yeah, no, that was a great conversation. We did hear from some of you that you wanted to hear a bit more about politics uh, on the show. Uh, now that you've actually done that, you may disagree. The whole point is uh, we're we're always happy to engage these questions and, and hear from you, uh, Melissa. Anything you wanna? Any final thoughts before we let folks go? No thoughts, just vibes. No thoughts, just vibes. Yeah, that no, that's very good. <laughs> uh, I'm heading out to the West Coast. I'm, 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 I'm gonna uh, miss you. I know, I know, I know. It's Our, ten days. Yeah, no, it, it's gonna be a long trip. I love San Francisco. I love San Francisco more when it's with you. Um, but. Um, um, but I'm I'm looking forward to being on the West Coast. But yeah, our uh, I I had my first real my three year old was like for the first time, uh, you know. Now that she's getting older, you know, she was she was like, Dada, I don't want you to go. And it's like, okay, cancel my ticket. You know, like it's <laughs> it's very hard to yeah, to, and- to pack. She she was getting in my suitcase as I packed it. Like all very like idyllic sort of conventional things that when they're actually happening in your life you know are just like so so heartbreaking and and really get your heart um so we're we're gonna have to make sure that uh i'm able to sing her her lullaby at night and that kind of thing yeah lots of facetime Lots of face out, and I told her i'd be home for valentine's day and oh yeah uh, i think i'll i'll guiltily buy her flowers and candy and make sure that she knows that is home uh hmm. all right hey it was uh it was uh great as always uh talking uh with all of you thanks for listening this is where is the love bye Bye. <laughs> I just realized it's in the song. I mean, Michael, come on. 